Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. Um, so I think, I think a lot of people would, would probably, and rightfully so, say that they, they want to, they're ready for a relationship where they can have a monogamous sexual partner. Okay, that would be the first thing that people would say, maybe. At least the dudes would say, say that for sure. Uh, others might, might say, well, I, I'm just, I want an intimate emotional partner. I want somebody that I can share things with, right? Somebody I can talk to, someone that's going to be there for me. And that would also be a very, very valid response. And maybe some people desire to have a family. Maybe that's what they'd say. Like, I, I want to have children. I want to have a family. I want to have a home. Valid response. Okay, but whatever is stirring your heart and causing you to idealize the marriage relationship, which is what so often happens, we idealize it. We imagine it. We imagine it as something wonderful in our mind, and we, we picture all the things that we desire. Now, however it is that you're idealizing those things, while all of those reasons are desirable, they are not your life's purpose. Now, some of you act like it is. Some of you are convinced that this is the, this is the primary objective of your life, is to figure out who your partner is going to be. And I just want to say that as a married person, and, and as well as the other married people in this room can attest to, that after you're married for a little while, you actually begin to realize that the person that you're married to cannot fulfill you. Right? No, no matter how wonderful all of the things that make up and comprise a marriage relationship, no matter how great those things are, at the end of the day, there's lots of married people who lay in their bed at night and they lack purpose, right? They lack an identity. They don't know who they are. They don't know who God has made them to be. And so, so I'm, I'm, I want to say right up front, right out the gate, that there's so many of us who desire this, this thing called a marriage relationship, but it's an idol in our life. And if we were only to get a glimpse, a glimpse of what it would look like to be married, we'd realize very quickly that the only one that could ever fulfill us is Jesus Christ. And so today's question, as we go into our sermon, is this. As it concerns marriage, do I have a biblical perspective on my marital status? Do I have a biblical perspective on my marital status? Now, granted, we've been talking about this for several weeks now. And so you're gaining a biblical perspective. But we're going to talk about something very acute today and specific regarding singleness and marriage and, and even for those who are uh, single from divorce relationships. Okay, so as it concerns marriage, do I have a biblical perspective on my marital status? And the, the, the title for today's sermon uh, is The Dynamics of Marriage and Singleness, Part 4, Subtitle, Be Profitable. Be Profitable. That's, that's going to be the punchline for today is to be profitable. So let's pray, and then we'll read, and then we'll start digging through the passage. Are we ready? ready. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for today. And thank you for your love, uh, your love for us, your, your, um, <laughs> your sacrifice, the proving of your love for us. And there is no greater love relationship, honestly, truly, Lord, 
that could ever match what you offer us. You've given everything. You've proven it. Um, and your love letter reminds us. And so thank you for your word and thank you, thankful for your pronouncements of love over our life. Thank you when we've, we've felt unlovable and we've felt alone uh, that you have extended a hand to us and you've called us to your side. <clears throat> thank, thank, thank you for uh, the promises, the promises of a future kingdom to come. And thank you uh, for the promises that one day we will actually uh, physically be able to stand by your side in an eternal kingdom. We love you, and we ask for your help regarding this topic, because it is tough. It's, t- it's a tough thing to talk about. And so, Lord, we ask for your help. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's read. We're going to start in verse 25. Now, concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. And they that weep as though they wept not. And they that rejoice as though they rejoiced not. And they that buy as though they possess not. And they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. But I, I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried care, uh, care, careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he hath pleased the Lord, or he, how he may please the Lord. I'm going to increase my font size there. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age and need so require, let him do what he will. He sinneth not. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, and hath, not, uh, and hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin doeth well. So then he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she so abide after my judgment. And I think also that I have the Spirit of God. Okay, a lot to cover today. We're going to do our very best to get through this. So be ready. I'm going to, I'm going to do my best uh, to, uh, to get through the content. I don't want to move too fast, though, so we'll see what happens. Okay, so right off the bat, we need to understand something very important, and that's this. That your current state, whatever state that might be, single, married, divorced, and single, okay, all of these states are good. They're good. Your current state is good. Now, last time we were together, we spoke about the topic of contentment, 
how despite your singleness or marriage or, or divorce status, you can be content. You can be satisfied in Christ. And so you can let go a lot of, of a lot of the burdens associated with your marital status. We feel those burdens, right? Now this line of thinking continues here as Paul is going to speak specifically to the singles. Okay, so single people, are you ready? Verse 25 says, now concerning virgins. Now, the the term virgin here is referring specifically to a single person who has never been married. Okay, so what Paul's doing is he's he's conflating our understanding of the word virgin alongside of the idea of of being unmarried and having never been married. And he's combining those two things together, consolidating them into a single term of virgin being someone who has never married and thereby never had sex, okay, which is the ideal of Scripture. Understood? Now, I, I want to pause here for a moment and address this idea of single people who've had previous sexual relationships, okay? And I think when we, we read this passage, it could be very easy for us to exclude ourselves and say to ourselves, Maybe the lie that we've told ourselves for a long time, and that is that we are somehow lesser than because we have mistakes in our past. And I just want to remind you that Christ has forgiven you completely. That he's forgiven you completely. That we all fall short of the standard of Scripture. That we are all weak in our flesh that we have all offended a holy God, but Christ has cleaned us. That Christ has made us clean. Paul addressed this in chapter six. I don't know if you remember it. When he's listing off all of those things that then in our past life, those things that we were prone to doing in our flesh before we knew Christ. But in verse six, or sorry, chapter six, verse 11, he says, and such were some of you, right? Amen, we were. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. See, the Christian's identity is not defined by their past. It is defined by what God calls us, and he calls us washed, he calls us clean, he calls us sanctified, he calls us justified in the person of Jesus. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation, okay, now, if you, if you understand and you read Romans chapter 7 and 8 before, you understand that Romans is basically Paul just grappling with the, the fact that he just is always sinning. He's always making mistakes. And despite the fact that he desires to do what's right, his past and his presence are just riddled with mistakes every day. And they tend to haunt him, right? They, 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 they cause him to question who he is and his identity in Christ. And then you turn the page and you find yourself in chapter uh, eight in verse one and you read this, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. And so the question for you is this, are you walking in condemnation because your past sexual experiences and your past failed relationships? Are you condemning yourself despite the fact that Christ has, has said he's not condemned you. And this becomes a cycle in our life where, we, where we, we recollect the mistakes that we've made and then we obsess over them. 
And what we say in our shame, we say, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of the goodness of God. I'm not, I'm not worthy of a dating relationship. I'm not worthy to move forward and to be married. I'm not worthy of, of, of having it the way that I desire. I'm just not worthy, and so it'll probably never happen for me. And that obsession with our past, to be honest with you, it's sin. It's sin because you're calling, you're calling what God's called clean, you're calling it vile, you're calling it dirty, and that's not right. We need to know that God has set us free and that he loves us despite our past. Amen? Amen. So let's not be defined by what, by what the accuser whispers in our ear, okay? Let's be defined by what God says about us and he calls us clean. Okay, moving on. Verse 25 says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord. Now what Paul is saying here is that he has no clear-cut, dry commandment, right? He has no one single thing to say. Paul is not in a position where he can say, you should be married or you should be single, right? He, he's not in a position where he can, in, in one fatal swoop, tell everybody on earth what they ought to do and what they ought not to do. You understand? It's a much more nuanced thing than that. It's not a commandment. It's a series of principles that he's giving us to help guide us in how we understand marriage, singleness, and divorcement. He's giving us principles so that we can navigate the complexities of our life. Isn't it so good that God does that for us? I mean, there's so often what we want is a clear-cut answer. I wish God would just tell me if I'm supposed to get married. I wish God would just tell me if I'm, if I'm supposed to stay single. I wish that, that, that uh, he would just, you know, whisper in my ear and tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do. It'd be, life would be so much easier. No, 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 no. See, he's provided you with principles so that you have the ability to navigate life and make these determinations based on what the Spirit of God wants for you. He set you free. And so Paul can provide divine principles necessary for guiding those who are making these kinds of decisions about singleness and marriage. And we're going to review those right now. He says, yet... I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. And I suppose, therefore, that it is good for the present distress. Now, what, what are the present distresses that Paul is referring to? Well, some of you are thinking, well, I know the distress. I want to freaking be married. That's the distress. I want to get married. And it's bringing me distress. Okay, well, that is a personal inspirational application, I suppose. But, but we know that there's three applications, okay, that include doctrinal and historical. And so we need to understand that there were distresses in Corinth. And it was common during this time for Jews to believe that the end of the world was coming at any moment. And so there was a, a lot of, of Jewish believers who were refraining from marriage because they were convinced, like, what, what good will it do if if the judgment is coming tomorrow. And so they were choosing to refrain from marriage. So that's the Jewish context. But there was also a, a, something that they refer to as asceticism during this time period, okay? And it was common among Gnostics. It would have been common in the culture of Corinth 
for, for people uh, of a, what's referred to as a cynical form of philosophy to say that marriage is a fleshly thing. It's a fleshly desire. It's a base thing to have a, a marriage relationship. And so because of that, because of these, these beliefs that I have that marriage is evil and not good for me, I'm going to refuse to get married. And so all of these things are swirling around, and, and they're presenting a distress on the people in the church of Corinth. They don't, they don't know what God has to say about this, right? They don't know what, I mean, they've got, maybe they've got some Matthew chapter 19, they've got some things that Jesus may have said, but they don't know, they don't have the principles necessary to guide them in their decision making. And so Paul's going to provide those things to them. So the questions are, am I supposed to remain married? And am I, am I supposed to remain single? And Paul responds. This is what he says. I say that it is good for a man so to be. What a wonderful statement. Well, so to be what? So to be whatever you are right now. So to be, right? So it's good for you to be single. It's good, it's good for you to be married. Married. Don't, don't, don't change that. Don't seek to change that. Don't seek to break that or alter that. Be content where you are. If you are married, it says, seek not to be loosed, which means seek not a divorce. So Paul is discouraging divorce for all the reasons that we talked about. Remember, we talked about this, right? We don't need to go back and revisit that. He's discouraging divorce because God hates divorce, right? But we also recognize that there might be instances in which divorce is necessary. We covered all that, right? Shake your head up and down if you know, if you remember that. Okay, so we don't need to beat that dead horse. But we have to understand that God is a God of reconciliation. So divorce ought to be discouraged because God wants to redeem. He wants to reform. He wants to heal. And the biblical counsel and the counsel of the church is that if everyone involved wants to follow the truth of Scripture, God can heal your marriage relationship despite how bad it is. Okay, it's difficult. It's hard for you. But God has a way. God has a way. A way to live, a way to make it work. So he says, art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. If you're married, don't seek a divorce. But then he also says, art thou loose from a wife? Right? Are you divorced? Seek not a wife. If you can remain single, remain single. So here's what he's saying in brief. If you're married, strive to remain married. If a person is divorced... They should, they should not work towards getting married, okay? In other words, if you're single, quit prowling around. Isn't that part of the problem? Isn't part of the problem that so many of us are trying to make something happen, right? We have some sort of desire, and so we, we, we navigate this thing we called Kaya, call Kaya, and we're working so hard at making something happen. That through our best efforts, we completely neglect what God's doing in our life. We're distracted. We get distracted. So Paul has essentially already explained this concept to us, that in terms of mobility and kingdom usefulness, that singleness is preferable. It's better to be single. Why? Because you have nothing holding you back or keeping you from doing exactly what God's asking you to do. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 says, For I would that all men were even as I myself. 
But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I, single. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. So why is this worth Paul's reiteration? So why, like, Paul seems to be coming back to the same ideas. Why is this worth him covering? Because he knows that single people are inclined to despair in their singleness. He knows that, that people always seem to hate the state that they're in. They have reasons to complain. They have reasons to, to, to despise exactly where God has them. And so Paul's reiterating these things because he wants to teach you something very important, and that's this, key point number one, see God and let him take care of the details. See, your primary objective is not to make something work. Your primary job is not to go hunt down a wife or a husband and make it happen. You're, it's not your responsibility to change the person that you're dating. Guess what? You probably can't. That's something God has to do. It's not your responsibility as a married person to try to make your husband or wife be everything that you ever dreamed of. Okay, so you're disappointed. Okay, he's gained a few pounds. Okay, like there's, there's things to be disappointed about. Right? It's not your job to fix anything or make it happen. Your job is to pursue the Lord with everything that you have, to be content exactly where you are because that's where God has you. Be content and let him work out the details. Because really, at the end of the day, singleness and marriage, they're just details of life. regardless of what state you're in, God wants to use you. That's the big deal. That's the big deal. Like, for, like, come on, get out of your bubble for a second. The big deal is that the creator of the universe knows your name. And then he wants to use you for a mission that's bigger than yourself. And you're hung up on details. I mean, they're just details. I mean, that's why Paul uses this kind of language. He's like, oh, if you're married, be married. If you're single, be single. It's cool either way. Like, at the end of the day, God wants to use you, and that's what we're going to get at today. So seek God and let him take care of the details. Determine in your heart that God's going to be your number one. Okay? So my wife, Eva, knows that she messed up, okay? She knows, deep down, I am not all the things, right, that the, you know, that the dealership was offering on the, on the ticket on the window, okay? I have failures. I, I'm weak, and I'm not everything that she probably hoped or imagined that I'd be. Okay, the beauty is that she's not living for me. She's living for God. And if he's her purpose, and if he's my purpose, we'll find satisfaction regardless of how weak we are. God's got to be our number one. But at the same time, God has also made marriage a very wonderful thing, and he loves it. He loves marriage too. He loves singleness. He loves marriage. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> Proverbs 18.22 says, Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing. So either way, single or married, both are good. But God has, has to lead you just like in every other aspect of your life. He's got to lead you. 
He's got to guide you. He's got to be the one taking care of the details because here's the, the real deal, singles. You can screw this up so bad. There's so much room for error here. Like even though these are details, they're, they're details that can derail your whole freaking life if you let them. Like you can marry the wrong person because you're after the wrong person. Or because you want to worship a spouse. You want to find someone that you can worship or who will worship you just as bad. And so there's a ton of room for error. So why not invite Jesus Christ into this process and let him take care of these details? Why not let him help you make these decisions? Now, continuing on, if a single person chooses to get married or if a divorced person chooses to get remarried, they have not sinned. Okay, that's what this next verse says to us. Verse 28, but and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned, and if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Okay, so there's two different types of individuals here in this passage, right, in this, in this verse. Okay, the first one is this, the virgin. And we've already talked about who that person is. That's a person who's never been married before. Okay, that's a single person never been married before. Okay, and it says, and if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. But this other person is, is in, in the context, a divorced person who wants to be remarried. And it says, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. So getting remarried from divorce is not a sin against God. Okay, now listen. Here's the important thing to recognize, though. If you were the one who instigated a divorce on unbiblical grounds, like you didn't have grounds for divorce. You were just tired of that person because he was an idiot, okay? And you got divorced on unbiblical grounds. Paul, as well as Christ in Matthew 19, says that an unrepentant believer who's, who's divorced their spouse on unbiblical grounds is in the wrong and they need to repent. They need to make that right. But maybe you are the person in that relationship who someone actively divorced you. And in that case, we already know because we've read it in chapter 7 that you're free to remarry and that your, con your conscience should be clear before the Lord. Okay, so those are details that apply to some people in this room, and I think it's important to cover that. You need to be at peace that if God's called you to remarriage, that you can do that, right? That, that's an acceptable thing to do. But if there's something that you've done wrong in your previous marriage that you need to make right before you can move forward, I mean, what Christ and Paul both advocate for, really, at the end of the day, is for you to reunite with the person that you divorced. But a lot of times, that's not possible, Okay, so repentance before the Lord is, is sufficient, and then you should have peace in your heart to move forward in faith. Does that make sense to everybody? I don't want to get down in the weeds, but it's important because I know that there's people that have experienced these things in their life, and it's, it's important to have that burden lifted from your shoulders. So Paul is advocating for singleness, but he also says you have freedom to marry, and he's reminding you as a single person, listen to me, you have the luxury of options, you have the luxury of options. So here's the next key point. Singles, see your biblical options clearly. See them clearly. See them for what they are, okay? It's good for you to remain single. Why? 
because you can be flexible for the use of the Lord. Embrace that. Enjoy it. But at the point that you recognize that there's someone who's pursuing you and you love them and, and you feel convicted about getting married, okay, that's cool too. But know your options. Like, be aware. Be fully aware. See, because here's the deal. Married people, they've made a vow. And they don't have options. They don't have any options. You've got options. You're in a place of flexibility. For a married person, once they're married, praise the Lord, they're married for the rest of their life, right? That's the goal. That's the objective. And so if you're single and you're in a place where you can weigh your options, right, to determine whether or not to be married or remain single, that's awesome. That's a really good place to be in. Because the Lord can use you any way he sees fit. And you've got time. You can let him work out those details. You can let him lay a path before you. You can let him lead you into a marriage relationship if he sees fit. You don't have to stress about it is the point. Okay? And so quit stressing about it because you're stressing me out. (laughs) You're stressing me out. Right? With all your te- crazy late night text messages about how you think you found the one or whatever. Okay? Look, I'm in your corner. I'm here. I want to give you advice at any point along the way. I want to help you. Let's talk about it. But please, don't, don't lose your minds. Okay? Trust God with the details. Either you found the person that's going to marry you or not. And if not, that's good too. Right? That's the point. And here's the deal. Why do you need to weigh your options? Okay? And this, this statement that Paul's about to make is a segue, is a segue for us to some really important facts. Okay? He says, Nevertheless, if you choose to get married, such shall have trouble in the flesh. But I spare you. Like, listen to my advice here. Listen to what I'm saying. If you choose to get married, you're going to have trouble in the flesh. Oh, no. It's wonder- Isn't marriage just wonderful all the time? Isn't it just beautiful? It's like every day is like Disney World <laughs> when you're married. No. No, God's letting you know. Like, look, you're asking, like, there's going to be hardship that comes along with that. There's going to be good things. There's wonderful things involved in marriage, but there's going to be hardship as well. And the main thing that we have to understand is that, is that whatever we do, whether we get married or we stay single, we've got to remain profitable for Christ. That has to be the main thing. So now Paul is going to explain some of the difficulties that might come with marriage And ultimately, Paul is going to admonish married and unmarried people to focus on keeping and living with a particular worldview that we refer to as the Great Commission. Keeping that in mind, focusing on the kingdom despite your marital status, which is the hard part. Let me explain. We're going to start this way. Six ways, six ways to remain profitable despite your marriage status. Okay? 
If you're, this is it. This is the kind of notes that you take. This is where you take notes. Get the notepad out. Ryan's like leaning forward. That's the, that's the posture that you need for note-taking, okay? Because here's the deal. Whether you want to be married or you don't want to be married, whether you are married or whatever, whatever your situation is, you have to remain profitable for the kingdom. When you get to heaven and you stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat, he's not going to say, how fun was marriage? <laughs> wasn't, it, wasn't it great? No. He is going to measure your life based on whether or not you were profitable for his kingdom's sake. And so we need these, these six ways from Scripture to remain profitable despite the fact we may be single or married, okay? So here's the deal. Number one, stay urgent. Stay urgent. Verse 29 says, but this I say, brethren, the time is short. That's how he starts this section. I, let me remind you real quick that the time is short. The time is short, which is a theme throughout the New Testament. With each passing day, Christ's return is more and more imminent. He told us he's coming back. He told us what the world would look like as he prepared to come back. You've read the news. It ain't great. And a lot of what we see prophetically is, is, is being actualized. And so today we are closer to the rapture of the church than we were yesterday. And the point is that we need to live with urgency as though Christ is going to come back any minute. So why are you getting hung up on the details? He's coming back. He's coming back today. Just assume it so. Romans 13, 11 says, And that, knowing the time, then now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than the day that we believed, when we, than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, darkness and let us put on the armor of light. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch under prayer. See, here's the deal. Here's the beautiful thing. Is that even in the very first century, they were obsessed with this idea. It's this hanging, looming idea in Scripture that Christ is coming back any moment. They were convinced of it the way that we ought to be convinced of it. And we ought to live according to that. So this idea of urgency is important. Why? Because whether married or single, whether you're weighing your options or you are already locked in, we need to be careful of our perspective. See, Christ is asking us to focus on the Great Commission until he returns. He's calling, he's calling for us to live a life free from worldly concerns. So we have to live like he's coming back tomorrow. That's how we have to live. And we have to, because of that, choose to leverage our singleness or leverage our marriage for one purpose. And that's a good judgment seat. It's a kingdom purpose. So whatever our status might be, we are to leverage it as though Christ is coming back any moment. So that frames the context of the other things that we're going to look at. So number one, is to stay urgent. Number two is to stay focused. Stay focused. It says that both they that have wives be as though they had none. What the? 
That's a weird statement. So if you're married, act like you're not. Okay, that'll get you in trouble every time. <laughs> so what is it saying? It's not saying that you need to live as though you aren't married if you are. It's saying that the work that you would do for the Lord if you were single ought to be the same work that you would do for the Lord if you're married. That's what that means. It means that marriage should not impede the work that God has called you to. So if you're married, you and your spouse should be so obsessed with the urgency of the kingdom that despite the fact that you're married and you have all these things that get in the way, you know, changing diapers, keeping your house clean, all these lame things that married people have to do all the time, despite the fact that those things are in your life, you are still called to be useful. And it has to be almost as though you are single. That's how flexible and readily available you need to be. So you've got to stay focused. Here's the key point. Married people, don't be so distracted that you become disconnected. Don't be so distracted that you become disconnected. See, it's incredibly common in Christianity that two people who were once involved in ministry and evangelism, they were bought in, they were sold out, they were doing exactly what the Lord asked them to do. They were passionate about the word of God, zealous in every regard. They get married, and all of that seems to dissolve because they, they start obsessing about one another. They, they start a family. They buy a house. And now those things become the most important thing in their life. And the sad thing is that they're often so oblivious to the fact that they're, they're, the zeal of their Christian faith, their sense of urgency has eroded and gone away. They're so oblivious to that that they don't usually discover that they've messed up until their kids turn 18 and they lose their minds. And they go away to college and their kids aren't in the faith and they realize that we prioritize the wrong things. That we thought what we were, that what we were doing was being loving and caring for our family, focusing on good things. You know, God wants us to focus on the family, right? He wants us to focus on paying attention, raising our children well, providing for the family. Okay, here's the problem. When those things become the first thing and they become the priority, you are going to set your family up for failure and, and you're going to set yourself up for no reward in heaven because you failed to do the main thing. So when you have a family, when you have a family, you have to remain focused because it's, I would rather die than to see my kids walk away from their faith. It has to be my chief priority, everything that I do. And I've got to live as though, as though I was a single person following the Lord. I have to have that level of zeal. So what must be learned in this? If you're going to get married, live in such a way that marriage itself does not hinder the work of the Lord. Don't be captivated by the trappings of marriage, but use marriage to engross yourself as a team into the work of the Lord. God's going to ask us to be balanced. He's going to ask us to be balanced, and that's the thing that we need to look at here is that, that we need to remain balanced in our perspective not by throwing away what we have in our relationships in the world, 
but rather choosing to prioritize him and his mission over other things. It's not that my marriage is bad. It's that my marriage needs to be balanced and appropriate, and he needs to remain focused on God. Number three, we need to stay steadfast. Stay steadfast. And they that weep as though they wept not. Human relationships are very powerful, and they draw some of the deepest emotions, don't they? In my marriage relationship, I don't feel emotions for anything else the way that I feel emotions as it regards Eva and my family. Those things conjure up the deepest emotions in me. You want to see? I mean, I, I cry about Jesus, Jesus stuff. That makes me cry. You guys all know that. But the other thing that makes me weep are things regarding my family. They catch my heart. Now listen, emotions are good. In fact, sadness is good. Weeping is good. There's an appropriate time and a place to weep. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. There are times in which it's important to weep. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. He's calling us. God calls us in some cases to weep. It's appropriate. So what is, what is God saying here then? He just said, I ought not cry. No, 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 no. And what he said is that when you do weep, when you are brokenhearted, when life is difficult, you need to live through that and function in your life as if you weren't brokenhearted. And as though you weren't sad. Why? Why? Why is that important to God? Because our relationship with Christ is of greater significance than our relationships in this world and our emotions, which change from day to day. 1 Corinthians 7 is not saying that crying or having a broken heart is bad. It's simply saying that we must live the mission in such a way that moments or seasons of sadness do not interfere with God's purpose for our lives. That's what it's saying. Don't let the way you feel get in the way of what God has called you to. But so many of us do. When we feel weepy, when we feel sad, what do we do? We isolate, we hide away, we don't want to talk to people, we disengage, don't we? That's that's so many of us have that habit. And God's saying, okay, so you feel sad. I see your sadness. What does it say? The scriptures tell us that he's counting your tears. He's very, very aware of your weeping. He cares for it greatly. He empathizes in every regard. But he's asking, he's saying to you, hey, believer, be mature. Be mature. You have a mission. So despite your sadness in this moment, persevere. Fight through. Stay focused. Stay steadfast. Number four, stay sober. Stay sober. And they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. Okay, now God's got a problem with rejoicing. He doesn't like celebration. No, 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 no. See, our lives are are full of so many wonderful moments And marriage, in fact, can produce a lot of those moments. Like my greatest memories of life, like monumental moments in my life, they include my wife and they include my kids. Marriage is a wonderful thing and it produces very fond memories of celebration and happiness. Rejoicing in marriage is good. The Bible says so. Proverbs 5.18. Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. 
He tells us to rejoice in our marriage. We should rejoice in life, particularly when we rejoice in what God has done, right? What does Solomon say, though, okay? Solomon provides us in Ecclesiastes 11.9 a balance to this perspective, all right? Can you follow along with me? I think the verse is up there. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. Rejoice. Rejoice. Celebrate. Be stoked about life. Be full of rejoicing. But know thou that for all these things, God will bring thee into judgment. That's, I mean, that's kind of a wet blanket, right? No, no, listen to me. God says you're responsible for how you rejoice in this life. It's sobering to know that how we choose to rejoice in this life has consequences in the next. So when Paul says rejoice as though they rejoice not, God is not saying that celebration and and happiness are bad. Simply that we must live the mission in such a way that happiness does not interfere with God's purpose for our lives. When we chase after happiness, okay, what do we do? Oh, I got to get a job that pays me good so that I can buy the stuff that I want. I got to marry that person. I've got to do this. I got to do that. Chasing happy feelings. Oh, I mean, my weekends, we got to go to the lake. We got to do this. We got to do that. Because you're chasing happy feelings. And here's the problem, is that when we focus so much on celebration and rejoicing and happiness, we make potential to forget the mission and leave Christ out of our life. It's the, it's the same exact reason. And this is going to tie to the next concept too, but it's the same reason why God's like, hey, look, a rich guy, a rich guy, him going to heaven, him accepting me as Savior, that's a difficult proposition. That's tough for him because he's got everything he needs in this world. He's happy. He's always entertaining himself. He's always rejoicing. He's always merry. And it's like, it's like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle, that dude going to heaven. Right? It's a, it's a miraculous work. Because so many people in our contemporary world, in our Laodicean culture, are so obsessed with happiness that they lose sight of who God's called them to be. Right? Okay. Our relationship with Christ is of greater significance than our relationships and enjoyment in this world. So while we may be rejoicing, we must live as though uh, our emotions are tempered with sobriety of thought, sobriety of God's word. So be sober in your emotions. Next, we need to live untethered, okay? Stay untethered, stay untethered from the world. It says, and they that buy as though they possess not. Okay, so now God's concerned about what I purchase. Okay, when I go to Target, ladies, ladies, Yeah, God is concerned about the stuff that you own. Not, not, not because owning things is bad. Not because buying things is necessarily bad. See, Paul's referring to here ownership of stuff, a car, a home, physical assets of varying types, owning things, right? Now, owning things is not wrong. It's just that sometimes things can own us. Sometimes the things that we own own 
us. That's the problem. So Paul is advocating specifically for living a life unburdened by wealth and possessions. Proverbs 23, 5 says, Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle towards heaven. Okay, you can't take any of it with you. So how important could it be? When you die, when you die and you go to heaven, you're not like, you know, was it Scrooge McDuck, Right? It's not like that swimming pool full of gold coins is following you to heaven. It's going to stay right there. Why? Because it's earthly. It's temporal. It holds no significance whatsoever in the heavenly realm. Right? But yet we worship stuff like that. Money is fleeting. I think we all know that wealth can't bring us joy, right? I think we know that. Don't we? The wealth can't bring us joy. And that the more we own, the more tethered we are to managing our assets, making payments on stuff. Bills, bills that, that come in the mail, especially. The ones that come in the mail that come to your house and they show up, they make you want to die. <laughs> it, it's almost as though, it's like someone is like, like, pushing you underwater, trying to drown you. Like, you feel like you're suffocating when those things show up. Property taxes. <laughs> you thought you were doing so good. You had your savings account was starting to get a little cushion. And then property taxes. All of it's gone, just like that. Maintenance and upkeep. Temporal activities for temporal things. But these are the types of things that everyone, especially married couples, they become immersed in. Now, we must live the mission in such a way that the things we own or possess do not interfere with God's purpose for our lives. Our relationship with Christ is of greater significance than our relationships on earth and the difficulty associated with owning stuff. It's like, come on now. You don't need one more thing. You need God. Number six, stay unenticed. Stay unenticed by the world. And they that use this world as not abusing it. Okay, this statement is an interesting one. It says that the world may be used. We can use the world, but we should not abuse it. Okay, what does that mean? So the world is abused when it's not used to honor God and do, and do good. It's and when we use the world and we abuse the world, it becomes a catalyst for our lusts and our obsessions. So instead of serving our master, we can very easily serve the world by setting our affections on the wrong things. Okay, you can either set your affections on earthly things or on heavenly things. Which do you choose? Colossians 3.1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So we must live in the world. We must, we must live here. That's, that's our, I mean, that's our only option at this given moment, isn't it? Is that we're living here. So we must live here. Right? But, but we've got to live in the world but, but the world cannot 
and should not live in our hearts. Right? So despite the fact that we're living in a world, we cannot let the world live in our hearts and take residence there. So here's a really good example, I think. So the internet, it's always bad when the pastor starts talking about the internet. It's not good. The internet and technology are such an, an easy example here because in so many ways, the internet benefits us. It's intended to be leveraged. And so as a believer, man, I use the internet to study, study the Bible. I use it for communication. It has value, right? It has value in our relationships. It helps us. It helps us in many ways, and we ought to leverage it. But what happens when we abuse the internet? Oh, you can think of all the ways, freaky people. You know, when you abuse the internet, listen to me, it's abusing you, right? It can own you. It can own you, and you can go to places that you should have never been. We fall prey to things. Things that we set out to use, we fall prey to them as we abuse them. We're supposed to leverage the world for God and his glory rather than letting the world leverage us and convert our hearts to pride and perversion. I, I think about, just and by way of example, I think about the nation of Israel. Remember when the nation of Israel left Egypt and they set out? They took with them, they took a bunch of stuff. I mean, they, they were in a good place. And with them, they took gold. They got like tons of gold. So they're wandering around the desert with all this gold. You know what God wanted to use that gold for? For the tabernacle. He had a plan in mind, didn't he? He wanted to leverage that gold for his glory. What did they do with that gold? They turned it into an idol that they worshipped. That God made Moses grind into dust and made them drink. Not a good day. I've never drank gold. Seems like it has the potential to be painful. Okay, but listen to me. The point is that what God gave to them to use, they ended up abusing it. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. We have to stay unenticed by the world. They don't have anything to offer us. So the passage in 1 Corinthians is not advocating that using the world's system is not bad. I mean, I like tap water. That's a worldly system. I like roadways. I like trash disposal. I like the police department, except when they're pulling me over. I like the internet, right? I like grocery stores. I like the things in this world that I can leverage for God's use. And just because the world is dark doesn't mean that we have to navigate it in the darkness. You understand? God's given us a lamp. This, this book right here is the lamp that should guide us to get through and navigate a world that's dark. You don't have to, be, you, you don't have to uh, become like an Amish person and like quit, re, quit this reality. Oh, I'm tired of living in Egypt. I'm out of here. And you go and you like move into a house in the woods and you, know, you live some sort of false Christian ideal somewhere out in the middle of, the no, of nowhere. It's nonsense. We're called to live in the darkness and we're supposed to be guided by this lamp and we're supposed to use the world for God's glory, not abuse it. The instructions right here, 
He's not telling them to run away from Corinth and hide. He's telling them how to live there. He's telling them what it means to keep purpose before your eyes and to put Christ as the priority over everything. And singleness and marriage, these are just, these are just things. They're just things in life. For the fashion of this world passeth away. Right? It's the fashion of this world. I love that. Man, King James. Oof. The fashion of this world, the things that you can see, your aesthetic reality will, will pass away. It will, it will be burned. It will disappear. But I would have you without carefulness. In other words, don't be afraid. Live as though you don't have a care in the world. Oh, but, but I care about all these things, these, these trappings of my life, my car payments, and, and, and my wife, is, she, she's upset with me again, and there's all these things. Okay, listen to me. Listen to me. Live God's way. Live God's way so that you can live without carefulness. Psalm 103.15, as for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth, for the wind passeth over, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. Here's our next key point. We're going to cruise here, I promise, okay? It is hot. It's hot. It's these lights. Uh, I'm like the grass. I'm going to wither away up here. Okay, you with me? Key point. Whatever shackles us to this life will keep us from living and striving for the next life. Whatever's shackling us to this life, whatever it is, you know what it is. It doesn't even have anything to do with marital status. Whatever shackles you to this life will keep us from living and striving for the next one. We need to understand that. That's, that's, the primary, that's the primary thing that Paul's teaching us. Now, Paul's going to point out how the marriage seems to produce its own kind of difficulty. And it does. It, results, it can potentially result in a lot of distraction from the ultimate purpose of living the Great Commission. Now, real quick, remember when he said, if, you're, if you are so desirous of a sexual relationship with a partner, it's better to burn, or it's better to marry than to burn. It's better not to burn. <laughs> It's better to marry, remember when he said this? It's better to marry than to burn, right? So that's God's way of saying, okay, if that's the way you're feeling, let me, here's a principle for you. Feel free to get married. Okay, but now we've got this other warning in, in seven, chapter 7, verse 28. And it turn, he turns around and he, he gives you a warning about marriage too. But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh. Okay, you can't win, can you? You just can't win. So what Paul's saying is he's saying that you have to count the cost. You have to count the cost. You have to consider the cost-benefit analysis of your life and ask yourself the hard questions about singleness, the hard questions about marriage, because you have the potential, if you don't count the cost of being unfruitful, verse 32, but I would have you without carefulness, he that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, but, but he, that, uh, how he may please the Lord. 
Verse 33, but he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. I have a responsibility to my wife. I've got to care about those things. They can be a distraction. There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. So the unmarried woman, she's got the opportunity to to live a life devoted to the Lord, caring for his things only. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. We're going to stop there, okay? Now listen, I'm going to invite Seth up, okay, if we can. And we're going, to close, we're going to close in worship. But listen to me. Here's the, here's the proposition. Here's the invitation. Are we ready? Married people. You may or may not be sitting to your, next to your spouse right now. I don't know. But here's the deal. You have to ask yourself a hard question. Is the marriage that I have glorifying to God? Are those six things that we talked about, those those things, are those true in my marriage relationship? Does my marriage glorify God? If you've become distracted with things of the world, let's repent of that today. Let's pray with our spouse. Let's take the time to to set our eyes and our affections back on the things of God. Let's get sober. Let's get steadfast. Let's create a plan, a vision for your your family, for your home that's going to allow you to move forward in faith and to prioritize the things of God. Let's get that right today. Single people, if you're struggling with being content, if you feel dissatisfied and you look at that checklist that we looked at today, you look at those six things and you say, you know what, I haven't been urgent for the things of God. You know what, I haven't been steadfast. I haven't been sober. I have been enticed by the world and I am, I am distracted and I'm disconnected for God's plan. Get that right. Grab your Bible study leader. Grab someone that's gonna be standing up front during our worship. Grab a hold of them and say, would you pray with me? I've got, I've got to get my life focused on God. Can we do that? That's what we're going to do as we close. Let me pray, and then we'll worship. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that the areas that were unclear uh, in my words, that they were clear and made clear uh, by your Holy Spirit. And uh, God, I I pray that you would continue to speak to us from your word, that people wouldn't just leave uh, to go and do the next thing, that that they wouldn't, again, just put the world... (laughs) as the primary focus of their life, that they would be able to set that aside for a moment long enough to work through what needs to be worked through. That they would allow their heart to be broken for areas in their life that are unfaithful, incongruent with who you are, things that aren't right, that they would be set right, that they would repent and their feet would be turned squarely towards you, that they could pursue you and make you the priority again. So Lord, help our married people, help our single people to set their affections on things above and to follow you with everything that they have. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.